Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Intro to Drama podcast. I'm your professor, Kate Gibbon. This is one of the podcasts that covers the ideas behind the analytical tools we're learning to use in class. You'll have done some reading about these ideas already, and this podcast will hopefully clarify those ideas further. Make sure you're paying close attention, because when we come together in our Zoom call on Tuesday, we'll be using these ideas as a group. The topic of today's podcast comes from David Ball's Backwards and Forwards. We'll be going over chapters 1, 2, and 3, which provide a technique for determining exactly what happens in a play. This is the technique you'll use to answer the first question in your Hamlet script analysis assignment. Feel free to review this podcast whenever you need a refresher on this technique. Let's get started. that it's usually pretty important to talk about is figuring out why you're doing something. And this will probably crop up in our discussions later, but it's so important that I think it's worth discussing several times and in several places. In the introduction to our textbook, Ball makes it clear why you ought to care about analyzing and interpreting plays. Because they will be put on stage or on video conferencing, considering the times, for an audience. Because the people working on a play and making decisions about a play that will be seen by many dozens or hundreds or thousands of people had better know that play inside and out. How can you expect to convincingly tell a compelling story without knowing intimately exactly what that story is? are hardwired to perceive narratives. This is something that unites almost all theater ever. I'll be honest, the bulk of the theater history I know is Western in origin. But from what I do know about Japanese theater, Indian theater, Egyptian theater, all of that zeroes in on narrative as well. Some theater tries to avoid a narrative, especially the more experimental forms of the art that crop up in the early 20th century. But I argue that even the most non-narrative theatrical piece has a narrative within it, regardless of the creator's intent. I say that because even if we witness a performance with no discernible narrative, how would you go ahead and describe that performance to a friend? Very likely you'd go something like, well, I guess it didn't really have a plot, but at the beginning, well, it was very exciting when everyone rushed into the seats. It was sort of an intense experience even getting into the theater, you know? And they had all these numbers strung up on the wall, and they said they were trying to get through all the plays, but they had a timer, and we shouted out the numbers, and they would do a little play, and the, the first one was a girl holding a flower sack and talking about our baby. And there was one where they all wandered around with flashlights saying things that didn't seem to connect. And anyway, by the end of it, we didn't make it through the plays, but we had made it pretty close, and the whole thing felt sort of triumphant. So if any of you have been to the Virginia Thespian Conference in the last few years, maybe you caught on that I'm describing a performance of Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, 
which is a neo-futurist piece that New Kent, I believe, has brought several times. I actually was able to catch it the first time they brought it in 2016 and again in 2018. It's great stuff. If you're from New Kent, congratulations, honestly. And if I got that wrong, correct me so I can congratulate you properly. Anyway, this is a specifically non-narrative piece of theater. Randomness is part of the point. It's meant to make audiences question, what is a play, what is art, and so forth. But when I go ahead and try to tell you about what happened, I still put it in a narrative. First, this happened, then this happened, and this is how it ended. That's the bare bones of a narrative. It started, it continued, it ended. So the plays we're talking about in this class, and like I said, the great bulk of plays that have ever been written do have a purposeful narrative. And in order to put those plays on stage successfully, we need to understand it, as the title of our book goes, backwards and forwards. David Ball's text suggests that this narrative is made up of actions. An action is a two-step process. First, this thing happens, then this thing happens. Because this thing happened, this other thing happens. Because this other thing happened, something else happens. And so on and so forth. I'm actually going to quote from our book here, from page nine, Quote, action occurs when something happens that makes or permits something else to happen, unquote. What is very important to realize is that these actions need to happen one after the other for the whole play. It's like a thing of dominoes. If I have a whole big, beautiful display of dominoes, each domino needs to knock down the subsequent domino. Now, these dominoes, if my design is very complex, might fan out and come back together. But it needs to be a self-sustaining connected trail of something happening that makes something else happen. If my domino design includes one pile here and one pile there, and I don't have a trail of dominoes successfully connecting the two, then I won't have my whole design completed, will I? Each piece must connect to the next. When I say it like that, it can feel overly simplistic. But a theme that will hopefully crop up again and again in this class is the idea that overly simplistic ideas are necessary for opening up more complex ones. I recall, and maybe you'll identify with this or not, not really being able to follow the plot of some of my favorite pieces of media until well into my undergrad. I mean, of course, I knew what happened, you know. Alphaba became the Wicked Witch of the West and left Oz. Christine went off with Raoul and the Phantom threw a hissy fit. Peta and Katniss had babies in a poignant, trauma-washed, sort of happily ever after. But if I caught myself sitting down and thinking about those stories, I'd easily find myself going, wait a minute, why did it happen like that in Act 2? What was it that happened that made that the only possible ending? Why didn't they just do this instead? And that comes from a failure of understanding those tiny interconnected plot dominoes. 
If you do the work to figure out each tiny point of connection, you can drop into a conversation about any page of the script and work out exactly what's going on, why it's going on, and how it will contribute to what will happen next, no problem. So backwards and forwards give some particularly illustrative vocabulary for this domino effect of action in a play. We know that an action has two parts. One, something happens, which makes two, something else happen. And Ball calls the first thing that happens a trigger and the subsequent action, the heap. I'm a very gentle and delicate person myself and I don't like the violence in that metaphor, but it tends to really get the point across. You can think of a trigger and a heap like the throwing of a ball. I throw the ball, a trigger, and the friend I'm playing catch with catches it, a heap. Or maybe I throw a ball and a dog jumps out of nowhere and snatches the ball from midair. Because the dog snatched the ball, it ran off to keep playing the game it started. Because a dog is running off with our ball, my friend and I chase it. Meanwhile, that same trigger of the dog snatching a ball means that the dog's guardian is also chasing after their dog. Say the dog, I feel bad saying it, let's say his name is Gerald, gets distracted and stops short. So me, my friend, and the dog's owner all try to stop in time but end up sort of falling all over each other. Because we all end up tangled together, I'm able to get the ball from Gerald the dog, and also, my friend ends up wrapped around the dog's guardian suggestively, which gives them both a bit of a giggle. And we can keep adding first this, then that, until I walk Gerald the dog down the aisle as the ring bearer at the wedding of my friend and Gerald's guardian, who fell in love at first sight because Gerald interrupted our game of catch one day. You know that meme where it's a very teeny tiny domino and it quickly just adds up to a comically large domino? It's that. I'll post that image in the discussion board as well. So basically, you open a script, you ask yourself, what is the very first event I see on the page? What happens first. In the case of Hamlet, it's implied by the first line. Bernardo must have heard something in the dark, and so he calls out, who's there? Because Bernardo is trying to figure out who's there, Francisco is able to have a chat with him and let him know what's been going on with the watch. Another domino event begins and encroaches on the action. Horatio and Marcellus come to join Bernardo in his guard duty, and Horatio immediately asks, has this thing been out tonight? So a question has been asked. So Bernardo says no. And Marcellus explains that Horatio is being a doubting Thomas about the whole ghost business. Because Horatio is being a doubting Thomas, Bernardo goes to explain to Horatio just how real this ghost is. Perhaps because Bernardo is explaining about it, or perhaps because Horatio has appeared, or perhaps this is a new domino piece, the ghost appears. And because the ghost appears and it won't speak to them, 
Eventually, Horatio and company decide to go tell Hamlet. It can get into the very nitty-gritty like in the example above. It's something of an art to whittle the pieces down small enough that you are able to follow every teeny, tiny little transition without just letting your events be so-and-so says this, and so so-and-so says that, and so so-and-so says this, etc. <laughs> but it's better to be a little too precise and then cut back than it is to be too vague and get lost at a key moment of design, blocking, or action. In the above example, too, you can notice how other pieces might infringe on the action without their being prompted. When I said we added another domino, I mean. That happens sometimes in plays like it does in real life. A play is a self-contained story. But sometimes, for example, Fortinbras shows up because he just got to the castle. It doesn't matter to Fortinbras that Hamlet's just died. He doesn't enter the castle because Hamlet has died. He enters the castle because he's just got there. So the domino pattern of events in a play is liable to be extremely complex. Events and characters might fan out from one another and come back together again and again. Backwards and forwards is a classic in the field and so is Hamlet, obviously. Reading Hamlet and discussing backwards and forwards is a common intro to drama experience. There's a great YouTube video of another theater class that obviously read both Ball and Hamlet and actually literally made a domino set of the actions in Hamlet. I'll link that video in our discussion board as well to offer an illustration. There is one more part of the process in figuring out what it is exactly that happens in a play. Much like in math class, it's checking your work. You know how when you finish an equation in math, you have to go back and check out what you did and make sure it still all makes sense? We do the same thing when we're talking about events in a play. And we do that because although when we're standing in the now, we could go in any direction at all in the future, in the past, we had to make certain steps to get here. In order to be teaching you intro to drama, I had to, somewhere along the line, have been accepted to do my graduate work at VCU, you know? Being accepted to VCU doesn't mean I'm definitely teaching you intro to drama, but teaching you intro to drama means at some point I had to be accepted to VCU. So we check forwards, not knowing where we may be going with the script, and we check backwards, making sure everything that needs to have been accounted for has been. So you've gone through and as far as you know, you've written down everything that could possibly happen in your play. Locate the very end of the list of events. Look at the event that happened last. Did the event before the last event trigger the last event? So the last event in Hamlet is that Fortinbras orders the stage cleared and Hamlet's body treated like a soldier's. What event preceded this? Before Fortinbras ordered the bodies moved away, Hamlet's treated like a soldier's, Horatio told Fortinbras he could tell him about what caused all this mess. So that tracks. Horatio says, I can tell you what's going on. And Fort says, that sounds great. Sounds like a very worthwhile cautionary tale. 
but it's very disturbing to be sitting around a pile of bodies, so let's tidy up first. And that's what we do, back and back and back through the script. Did that cause this? And so forth. Ball goes into a big discussion of this by talking about why Hamlet kills Claudius at the very particular moment that he does so. I imagine my document of reading for events for that scene might look like the queen dies. So Hamlet calls for the door to be locked to stop whoever's treachery is at work from getting away. Laertes tells Hamlet he's about to die. Hamlet kills the king and so forth. But Ball calls for a really close examination. Does Hamlet kill Claudius because he knows he's dying? I mean, sure, maybe, but that might sort of weaken your Hamlet. If you're the actor playing Hamlet or the director directing it, he only launches himself to murder when there is literally no other choice. I mean, that kind of lends some credence to the idea that Hamlet is too depressed to do anything or whatever. Ball suggests that we need to be clear when we're checking our work backwards about what precisely triggers the next thing. And he suggests that it's Laertes telling Hamlet the king's to blame, and that triggers Hamlet killing Claudius. So Ball is suggesting that Hamlet is still not sure about Claudius's guilt until Laertes finally confirms it. So in that case, my reading for events might go, the queen dies, so Hamlet calls for the door to be locked to stop whoever's treachery is at work from getting away. So Laertes tells Hamlet that Hamlet's dying and that the king's at fault. So Hamlet is convinced and kills the king. And I think that's fair, actually. You can see how particular we get with the lines. It's a pretty good reading. But with respect to our author, I disagree with his interpretation here, actually. I think if I was directing, I would actually consider this interpretation instead. The queen dies, so Hamlet calls for the door to be locked to stop whoever's treachery is at work from getting away. So Laertes says, yeah, no, the treachery isn't in danger of escaping. The treachery is on the poisoned sword, which is why you're dying. Laertes says, you, you know, the treacherous instrument is in thy hand, unbated and envenomed. So because of that, Hamlet knows that A, he doesn't have any more time to lose, and B, he has a tool that will kill the king ASAP. So Hamlet kills the king. I feel like we've actually seen Hamlet be certain about the king's guilt earlier, after the play within a play scene, and we've also seen Hamlet struggle with finding the exact right way and time in which to kill Claudius. He messes up when he doesn't kill Claudius in private when he thinks Claudius is praying. He messes up when he kills Polonius, thinking Polonius is Claudius. Now he's in front of all the courtiers and he can't just start going and killing Claudius in front of all of them. Now I will add that maybe Laertes announcing to the entire court the kings to blame allows Hamlet to kill Claudius in front of all of them with impunity. But Sorry, David Ball, I think Hamlet was already sure, but I do agree Laertes gave him the right opportunity just now. So here you can see that one, it is possible to disagree in script analysis, and two, it's important when you're working backwards to check your work that you get down to that micro level with a text. My favorite technique for that is what I sort of showed up there. You should be able to say, so, or maybe B, 
because of that in between each domino. If you can't, or if you feel like you're convincing yourself that it makes sense, but really it doesn't, go back to the text and figure out how pieces connect. Also, sometimes when you're working backwards, you're just making sure that you've covered your bases before. So like I was saying about Fortinbras coming into the castle, if Fortinbras is gonna make it into the castle, he has to have been headed there at some point, right? So you can also check your work backward with an eye to the entirety of the play, not just the thing that happened immediately before. Fortinbras showed up in Act 5, so I know he had to have been getting close in Act 4 and had to have been on his way as early as Act 1. Once you've gone through your script very carefully and figured out, first this happens, so that happens, so this happens, and so forth. And once you've gone through and made sure that all of that makes sense working backwards as well, you've done it. You know the events of the play you're working on very literally, backwards and forwards. You know exactly what happens and why it happens. You can take on the play, work with your collaborators, and successfully tell the story to all your audience members. Theater is about stories. Humanity is about stories. And knowing what happens in those stories is the foundation you need before you can get anywhere else. That's going to do it for the podcast today. I hope it's been a useful lecture. Happy script reading. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you at our Zoom call on Tuesday. <laughs>